from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Hi. It's almost hard to focus these days while you and I are coming to terms with the idea of so many people sickened or worse. With hospitals overwhelmed, doctors at risk, and all of us, well, socially distant, I'm sitting in a full embrace with a fresh bottle of Clorox disinfectant wipes, and I'm only a single pump away from that satisfying squirt of Purell. Anyway, we here at Politics Meet Me in the Middle find ourselves feeling rather distant from our usual concerns. Elections, primaries, debates, delegates, climate change, guns, education, and a myriad of heady Supreme Court cases. But now, from a politics perspective, while it's even harder to separate ourselves from a bit of fear, worry, stress, and anger, often partisan anger, we find ourselves blaming some or we point fingers at others and we seek out anyone who can answer our questions or maybe even display some true leadership. All we want is to be reassured and inspired. And maybe we want to just plain old feel safe. This, more than any time I can remember, is a time for all of us to meet in the middle, to work together to save as many people as physically possible, to strongly support and reward heroic healthcare workers, and yes, to reconstruct our economy so we can all go back to work and provide for our families. To that end, welcome to a Corona Economy edition of Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. I'm here with Ed Larson. Actually, wait, that's a lie. He's here from home, virtually connected to us by a touch of remote technology and some telephonic bandwidth. But I digress. Our co-host, Ed Larson, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, professor, worldwide lecturer, author of numerous books, and his new book, Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership, can be found, of course, on the bestseller list today. Come to think of it, that would be a good thing for all of us to do while we're at home. Uh, Ed, it's on Amazon, right? Yes. Welcome, Ed. Are you healthy? So far, so good. Great. And Dean Bame, uh, he's here, and he's also connected through the marvels of remote recording. He's been teaching us economics for more than four decades, and he's the divisional dean of business administration and professor of economics and finance at Seaver College, Pepperdine University. Welcome, Dean, and thanks for connecting with us. I'm glad to be here. Ed, as usual, we want to start with you and ask you to give us a bit of history to chew on. What in our country's past is most like the economic condition we're experiencing today in this coronavirus economy? One would be the Spanish flu that we're hearing so much about, the enormous epidemic that swept America, closing businesses, uh, driving people inside, uh, causing social distancing. Uh, it, it was a, a, a had three surges. It first came in the spring, much about this time of 1918, came back with a flurry in the fall, a second wave that was actually worse than the first, and then a third wave the following spring. Two-thirds of a million Americans died. Millions and millions were sickened. And people, businesses shuttered, people were driven home, and the obvious economic consequences resulted. The second one would be the Great Depression. The Great Depression happened slower, but it drove even more people out of work. Those are probably the two situations, both in the last century, that were most like the economic conditions we are experiencing today. 
So with those, uh, Ed, what leader in our history was most pivotal in inspiring and rebuilding the country we love from an economic perspective? Well, certainly Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He did everything right with the Great Depression in the sense he came in with a bold plan and he took office after Herbert Hoover had been dwaddling with half measures that didn't satisfy anything and things only got worse. And, uh, you know, we've now been ordered to stay home for another month now and who knows how long that's going to be. And uh, certainly there's an effect on our whole infrastructure. Can you describe what would seem like a domino effect here? What happens to our domestic economy as a result of this stay-home order? I I think that we're probably going to have uh, very, very strong ramifications. So a lot of people are comparing this to the 2008 uh, financial crisis. It's completely different. That was started by uh, banks and financial institutions who made some risky bets that didn't pay off. This is happening at the more of the grassroots level. There was a survey that was out last week that 30% of the restaurants in California said that they will probably fail uh, because of this. Now, that may have been some talk to try to get some aid, but you know, 30% may not be that large an overstatement. And so I, I'm not optimistic about what's what's going to happen once we get back to work. I agree with Dean. So many industries in so many ways, as the months add on to other months, add on to other months, there's going to be ripple effects throughout the American economy of the type that Dean is talking about. And they're, they're predicting 30% unemployment, which would bring it in line with the Great Depression. Dean, tell me a little about how you see the role of government in managing this type of economic crisis. Well, that's a good question. And again, we're in uncharted territory. You know, you, you can't go out and pull down the principles of macroeconomic textbook and say, oh, yeah, the last time that we were running a $3 trillion deficit, which if you add the $2.2 trillion bailout from last week, uh, we're, we're pushing $3.5 trillion deficits. The last time that we had uh, everyone ordered to stay at home, uh, and this is what worked. We don't know. They're doing the, the obvious things. With respect to interest rates, the Federal Reserve has done pretty much all that it can do. But then again, what happens when you have a, uh, a deficit that's right now at close to a, uh, a third of the gross domestic product of the United States? And if there's going to be another bailout of another $2 trillion. I don't know what the lasting impact of that will be on the economy. The president and the Congress, they extended unemployment compensation and they increased it. So basically, many people at the lower end would be making as much unemployed as employed. I fear that was a very short-sighted way to go. It's not the way they're going in England. It's not the way they're going in Denmark. They're, instead of extending and expanding unemployment, they are taking over the payment of the employer's 
obligations. And so they're keeping people employed. It really wouldn't cost much more. Now, there are two advantages to that. If you keep people on employment, if they're getting their check through their employer, as it's happening in Denmark and England, then they're still employed and they have the hope and expectation of a job when they get back. In fact, that's part of the provision. Also, uh, they don't have to worry about health care insurance. In America, where you, when you go on unemployment, you lose your health care insurance. And when do you need health care insurance more than right now? We're disrupting the economy in ways we don't need to. People are losing their jobs. They have no idea if they'll be brought back when this is over. Sure, they're taken care of for a couple months. So I think we could have done this in a much smarter way. How do you see something like this turning around? Are people just going to get snapped right back up when the virus appears to be gone and, and be back to full employment? Or is it going to be a slower, more arduous process? You know, if 30% of the restaurants go under, uh, those, each one of those restaurants hires five to 10 people. And so those people now are without income. Yeah, maybe they'll get some benefits. Uh, even the companies that make it through, if they're getting these business loans, they've got to pay those loans off. So they're going to be even more fragile. I think what we might be seeing, particularly if this lasts another couple of months, you might be seeing a change in attitudes. Hey, I, I went three months without going out to eat. Uh, yeah, maybe I, I don't need to do that anymore. May even begin to see businesses change. And that uh, if I can have all my workers work remotely, why do I need this big office? And so real estate may be affected as well. Yeah, I don't even know if there's any way that you can judge the impact this is going to have on all the different sectors of the economy. So with a long-term domino effect like you're talking about, tell us a little about how the banks are going to handle small business loans, mortgages, medium and big business covenants. How does that do anything other than explode months from now causing further devastation. Now you end up with a bank that has a balance sheet where its assets aren't equal to their liabilities. So you could end up with the Federal Reserve coming in or maybe uh, the federal government at some point coming in and just buying the bad assets. If the Fed or the federal government comes in and buys it for $80,000, then the bank still has uh, some uh, bank equity in it. Uh, so that's that may be a little easier to solve if we get to that point, if that ends up being the hinge. Okay, well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. It will be Hello out there. <laughs> this is Jenny Curtis. I am a human of the world, a podcast producer at Kurt Co Media, a performer, a creator, a very sensitive soul, as I've sometimes been told. And I am currently sitting alone in a very empty podcast studio surrounded by hand sanitizer. <laughs> and I'm recording this in an effort to reach out. It's not an easy time right now. I think a lot of us are thrown completely off balance by this sudden shift into isolation and anxiety. 
We don't know what the day-to-day is going to look like for the next few weeks, even months. So I'm proposing something. Let's all make something together. We're launching a new podcast called A Moment of Your Time. These are bite-sized episodes, and each one features you out there. You have a statement to make? Make it. A story to tell? Tell it. A song to sing? Sing it. An open letter to read? A comedy bit? A place to share your hopes and fears? A poem? A pep talk to yourself? We just want to have a place where people can express themselves, where you can listen to each other, where you can support one another. If you have questions or to submit, just email a moment of your time podcast at gmail.com. We may have to stay apart, but let's create together. Well, we're back, and I'm here with Ed Larson and Dean Bain. Let's go to you, Dean. Uh, You authored a piece called Olympic-Driven Urban Development in Olympic Cities. I did. So uh, very apropos here. So let's start in Japan, where uh, Prime Minister Shinzo, uh, he's executing his own stimulus package. But however, they've been been banking, sorry, on the Summer Olympics— uh, tell us a bit of what must be going on with their preparation, their businesses, large and small, with the idea that the Japanese government now is waiting an extra year before their Olympics. And they've spent, what, $25 billion preparing for this Olympics. Who's going to bail them out? Well, the uh, most of the preparation is already done because the Olympics were supposed to start uh, about four months from now. So the buildings are built. The For the most part, the railways, if there were any additional railways, were dug. Um, What's going to be the sector of the economy that probably hurts the most will be the sector that's hurting around the world, and that's going to be hospitality. Uh, They were looking for uh, perhaps no more than they normally have. Olympics, oddly enough, don't usually draw a higher occupancy rate in hotels than a normal year. But the people who are there pay a a lot of money to stay in the hotels. Corporations will rent out entire hotels to keep their, you know, award-winning staff happy when they win a trip to the Olympics and so forth. So the hospitality area is going to get hurt. Not only, you know, they were banking on big spenders coming in. They were hoping to get a, a group of people who will be happy to be there. Now those are all going to be gone. Three months in, in a world where no one is traveling, they're going to have to try to find some replacements. And I don't see that that's going to be something that they can do. Let's go international, guys, because I'd like to understand a little of how this is affecting trade. Is trade virtually on hold right now internationally? And what does that mean? Every indication is that uh, international trade is suffering. Uh, You've got factories in China that weren't able to be uh, operating for a long period of time. Uh, You now have trade being restricted between countries for concern that virus might be spread. Uh, The results that I've heard uh, are that uh, down here at uh, San Pedro, the 
shipping, uh, receiving, and, and outgoing has dropped dramatically. Overall, demand has just plummeted. And if demand plummets, that means foreign trade plummets because much of those things that we buy come from overseas. But it hurts us because exports too. Think of Europe. Demand's dropped there. Demand's dropped in Asia. And then think of the developing countries. They're facing a, a collapse that makes ours look like we're in Disneyland. Let's take a look at supply chains for a minute, where so many manufacturers get some of their parts from abroad, and they, they've gotten so good at just-in-time manufacturing that they get their parts, assemble them, and ship out a car or television or boat or plane or whatever it is they're, they're building. Tell me about what is likely to happen to American businesses, even in a kind of a restart, where the supply chain has been so broken as it is now. Well, and that's, that's part of the problem with uh, the automobile industry. But even if the parts are assembled here in the United States, the parts come from all over, uh, China, Korea, Germany, Mexico. And if those supply chains have been interrupted, then you're not going to be able to assemble a car because you're going to be missing parts. Uh, I think one of the reasons why you're seeing car companies volunteer to make the ventilators is uh, they don't have the wherewithal to make the cars anymore. No one wants to buy them anyway. No one can go to car dealers and so forth. So next best thing is let's make something else. We'll make ventilators. At a time where all countries are focused on not drowning from this virus internally, what happens to the countries that are only borderline stable in good times? It's uh, going to be destabilizing. You can expect probably political, economic. And to add to this, some of the countries, uh, at least in their initial response, are where the United States was, say, four weeks ago. Said, oh, you know, it's no worse than a cold. And the learning curve seems to be necessary in each country. And Brazil ends up sending a lot of car parts and things like that to the mm -hmm. United States. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that they will experience a spike, that's going to be a kink in the, in the supply chain. And Mexico is doing the same thing as Brazil. The president is saying, oh, it's just like the flu. Don't worry about it. Everybody stay out. Everybody keep going out. He's going out. He's still hugging people. When this hits Mexico, Mexico is just integrated right into the center of everything that America produces. I heard the other day that the entire country of Mexico only has 1,500 ventilators. Will the U.S. stop international aid? I've long since given up trying to figure out what the United States will do. My guess is we've already called the, recalled the Peace Corps wisely from the entire world. And when we cut back on aid and let these countries go on their own, we cut back American influence. So uh, prior to this pandemic, we were looking at issues like Iran with sanctions that were like designed to place a chokehold on their economy and influence the nuclear negotiations. But that was then and this is now. So, so now what? Actually, they're very mixed reports, and it's hard to see the United States as having much ability to react now because the Navy is in a very awkward position because those ships are like cruise boats. Many of the sailors are getting sick. 
reports indicate we're pulling out of bases in both Iran and in Afghanistan because the virus is spreading in those areas. So how can we move our military safely in to do anything when these are the situations? So I can't help but put you on the spot, Dean. For our listeners who are in various positions ranging from staying home because they're in a salary job that has suggested that they stay home or maybe that they they work by the hour and they're not getting paid right now and they're looking at some of these relief promises that they see on television and they're hoping that helps them out. Tell us, what do we do right now? What's your advice on how we should handle our day-to-day, week-to-week existence and optimize our family's future? You know, as far as where to put my money, should I go uh, buy something? Or mm, I, I'm not sure that there's any sort of general advice to give. But my thinking is, if we can get our arms around at, at a distance of six feet, of course, get our arms around this virus, the quicker we'll be able to resume something that resembles what we did before. Let me just underscore what Dean is saying, because it was truly emphasized by a report that came out just today from two top economists at the University of Chicago. They looked at this situation and they said, yes, just as Dean's saying, you've got to solve the health problem first. And that if you try not to do those things, you're going to cost the American economy $8 trillion. We've got to bring ourselves back home just a little bit, because from an economic perspective, there are things you have to do. If you have a small business, you got to get on SBA, and over the course of the next week, they're going to be outlining things you can do as a small business to recover amounts of money that it's going to take you to keep on paying your employees, for example. And that's not going to work for everybody, but it is going to work for some, and you should definitely check it out. You should talk to your banks, believe it or not. No one actually wants to go out of their way and talk to their bank. It's a scary thing to do. But you should talk to your banks and find out whether your mortgage is with one of these banks that is actually looking to develop a closer relationship with you and allow you to take a vacation paying your mortgage. You should check that out. And believe it or not, Banks are allowing people to take a two- or three-month vacation from paying their mortgage. So when we turn on CNN and we see stuff about $2 trillion here, $6 trillion in the future, a fourth stimulus package, all of this stuff just gets blurry when you're trying to think of how are you going to buy food for your family, pay your own mortgage, and survive. Too often things are us against them, me against them that the bank is against me, the bank is my enemy. No, not really. The bank is in this with you. And oftentimes banks would much rather renegotiate a loan, would rather forbear some back payments and so forth, uh, rather than try to write the loan off. So I think talking uh, to people with whom you owe money, uh, explaining your situation truthfully, I think people would be very willing to work with you if they have any flexibility to do so at all. Well, uh, for our listeners, we, we want to thank both uh, Ed Larson for joining us again and Dean Bame. Thanks for coming in. And I'm not sure you cheered us up very much today. 
but then again, I didn't want to present a false hope either. And uh, all I can say is that until the next time that we remotely meet on Politics Meet Me in the Middle, uh, you guys stay socially distant and hopefully gainfully employed. Be well. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. Kirko Media. Media for your mind.